Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Craig and welcome to another episode of Football Kit Memories. Today I meet the award-winning ad director and host of the Life Goals podcast, Theo Delaney. During the show we talk Life Goals, the Spurs show, a podcast Theo co-hosts and he gives us a peek into his day job with the world of advertising. Later Theo picks out three of his favourite football shirts and tells me a little bit about what they mean to him. There's a classic Lecoq Sportif Cup Final shirt for Spurs, something match worn by Scott Parker and his England tales from what sounds like a trip of a lifetime to Japan for the 2002 World Cup. You can listen to this and other episodes of Football Kit Memories on all major audio platforms including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please do subscribe, share and above all, enjoy the podcast. Okay, so today on the podcast, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by the host of Life Goals, it's Theo Delaney. How are you doing, Theo? I'm good. Thanks for having me on here. I'm excited. Mate, me too. It's great to have you on. Um, I'm a big fan of your podcast, um, but for anybody that hasn't heard it, do you want to tell us what it's all about? Uh, well, it's uh, the, the the sort of selling, the blurb is Life Goals, the podcast where well-known football fans relive the eight defining goals of their lives. So that's it in a nutshell. So it's a bit like Desert Island Disc, but you choose goals. And uh, the thinking behind it is... Uh, is that, you know, in football, you know, we all love football, we all live and breathe it, we're all obsessed with it. But the things, when you think about it, the most acute and impactful thing about football is a goal. We remember those goals, those last minute winners or the last minute, you know, goals where you lose. Yeah. Goals in, you know, penalties in shootouts, amazing free kick, all of that stuff. Those are the moments that get you so, so, so acutely and so memorably. They're indelible on your memory, and, it, and it's because of the emotional impact. So that's the thinking behind it. So uh, that's what people do. Yeah, they just they just they take me through. We do it in chronological order, and it, and it evokes other memories of their lives. You know, so they start thinking about what they were doing at the time. So they usually very often start in childhood, and then they talk about their career as they go on. Except it's not all that different from this one. Yeah, slightly, slightly similar. Yeah, slightly similar. Do you know what? If I had to pick eight goals, I would really struggle because I don't. Football is very fleeting for me. I don't really remember. Things right. that go on in matches, unless it's really kind of, you know, unless it's a cup final or something like that. You know, I just, I don't remember the game I watched last night. Right. Well, yeah, yeah you'd you'd be useless then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want me. <laughs> so yeah. you've, you've had some great guests on there, Theo. I have. I've had, I've been, I've been um, fortunate. I've had some really, and a real diverse range. So I've got, so there's like, I've had a lot of really good football writers and journalists, people from, say, the Guardian Football uh, Weekly and yeah. 
and the athletic and things like that. But then I've had some real left field people like I've had Greg Dyke and Alan Johnson, the former home secretary and about oh, wow. actors, actors and comedians. And, you know, so you get a bit of, you get a bit of, you never know what you're going to get next. The moment, my latest guest was Barry Fry, who was absolutely yes. fantastic. And he's completely unlike any other guest I've got, mind you, he is unique, of course, but he was, he was so brilliant, you know, yeah. So you never, and then and then next week I've got Kate Mason, who's from the Football Ramble and Sky Sports News, who's a completely oh. different kettle of fish, also brilliant. So yeah, it's diverse, and I've been fortunate. But you know, you have to keep at it, getting the guests, as you know. You have to keep, you know, that's a massive part of it is pestering people. And uh, for every yeah. good guest I've got, I've had about nine fuck offs. <laughs> I wouldn't like to tell you my ratio. I've had a few more than that. <laughs> It'd be nice to be told to fuck off rather than just be playing. Yeah, ignored, yeah, you know? ignored. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Theo, you also host uh, the Spurs Show podcast as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm one of two regular hosts on the Spurs Show with Mike Lee, and I've been doing that for years, and uh, I absolutely love doing that. It was the first podcast I ever presented. Before that, I was a guest on it for quite a long time. Right. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I'm an obsessive Tottenham fan and have been literally for as long as I can remember. And uh, so to do that, I mean, I was a listener first, then I became a guest, and then I became, uh, yeah, a regular presenter. So that was nice. a great process and again we've had some great people on there great Tottenham fans on there and we do a lot of live stuff not obviously not in the last year but do a lot of live shows do regular monthly live shows and then twice a year we do a big live show you know with, with right. somewhere like the 100 club or whatever and we get really good guests in for that we've had all loads of fantastic legendary people you know our delays and hoddle and uh Harry Redknapp and all sorts and those live shows have been great that's amazing and what's your kind of thoughts on Mourinho at the moment <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> oh god the Mourinho question no you know I, I'll be honest I didn't really want him I thought he was damaged goods but I understood why he got hired because Levy was in a predicament it's very hard to get a top a, a manager of the of sufficient standing in when the season's already well underway you know so he, he was really probably the only realistic option when he got him so I understood why he got him but I feared the worst and it's been up and down I mean if you'd asked me even two weeks ago, I said, I can't take any more. We're just waiting for him to go. Right. And now, as it happens, I mean, God knows when anyone will be listening to this because the, the roller coaster will no doubt continue. But as we <laughs> speak, we've just won four on the bounce and scored something like 13 goals in the process. And Gareth Bale has exploded into life. Yes. And so right now, if you're a Tottenham fan, you feel great. Uh, Mourinho, I think... He will go, obviously, eventually. He always does. He never stays very long anywhere. Of course, yeah. He's got a, a, ideally, he'd win something before he, before the inevitable happens. That's the best I can say, really. That'd be nice, yeah. That'd certainly be nice. So, Theo, your day job sounds even more interesting than all of that. You're a uh, TV ad director. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been making TV commercials for 30 years. Wow. As a director. I started incredibly young as a director, actually. And uh, yeah, that's been really good. And sometimes that overlaps with football because I'm such a massive football fan. When you're a director, basically the way it works is uh, in London, which is one of the main markets, if you like, for commercials production in the world, and has always had a very good reputation for it creatively and technically and everything. Yeah. There are loads of directors available at any one time. So it's very competitive and you get marketed by the production company you're with. Each production company is like a team and they have right. a roster of directors and they get marketed and you get marketed by, you know, if you're really cool and new, obviously that's good. If you've just done something brilliant, that's easy to market you. But you also get marketed by your specialisms. So right. you might be a comedy director or you might be a car director. They're very specialist. Or you might be a food director or right. you might be this or that. 
And sometimes there are other little niches. So one of my little niches, I've been fortunate, the reason why I've been going so long, because they, very, you're very prey to fashion and, uh, you know, it's a very capricious business, but I've been going a long time. One of the reasons for that is that I've been versatile. I've done lots of different things, but one of my specialisms, my little niches, uh, my little USP is my football expertise, because I'm so obsessed with football. Right. I've always attracted football work which has been brilliant. So I've made loads of football commercials with loads of, in fact, one of my shirt choices, as you know, is to do with that. I've always yeah. uh, had that as a, almost like a, a bit of a sideline. That's led to other things beyond commercials as well. Like I made a documentary with Eric Cantona for Manchester United. I've made, oh. I've done quite a lot of work at Tottenham Hotspur, right. you know, which has been obviously fantastic and very enjoyable to do. Uh, so yeah, but football, um, football permeates all aspects of my life. Wow. How do you kind of get started in that kind of world? How did you end up becoming a director? Well, I'll try and be brief, but I, uh, so <laughs> I, my school career was a train wreck. I hated school from the first day I went there. I was a persistent truant. Ooh. And, uh, and so by the time I got to my mid late teens, I was basically stoned the whole time <laughs> and had, and had no qualifications to speak of. Right. So, but I always fancied myself as a bit of a clever dick. I thought I was going to be a writer. God knows okay. why. And uh, anyway, I was at a family, all of my family work in advertising. Right. My, my father's the eldest of eight children. They were all worked in advertising. And I went to some family party and one of my aunts came up to me and said, uh, are you all right? You seem a bit uh, vague. I said, I'm completely stoned. She said, oh, um, do you want to, next week I'm setting up a small film production company. Do you want to come and, um, and just work for a week? Because we've got to buy all the stationery and basically set the whole thing up. We've got a couple of little offices in Soho. And I said, uh, uh what time do you have to start in the morning <laughs> they told me and i went uh, and i said what what would the what, what's the money <laughs> they told me that and i said i did a quick mental calculation realized i would i'd basically run out of money i had no money so i thought i'm gonna have to do this what a bummer and i went and did what i thought was going to be a week in this little film company and i just by the end of the week i absolutely loved it i loved everything about commercials production suddenly was this thing which i'd never never occurred to me before even though my family all worked in ad agencies and stuff never occurred yeah. to me there was a separate sort of sub industry of film producers and directors and production companies that were making the actual commercials so uh, you know i was off and running and like most people in that business i started as a runner and I just worked my way up. And I had a little sojourn as a journalist, a little detour, if you like, as a journalist right. on my way to being a director. But I ended up being a director at a young age. I started directing when I was like, really, I suppose my first, I must have been about 22 when I made my first. 22, wow, that's really... 23, maybe 23 when I directed my first. And won an, won an award for it as well when I really? made my first commercial, yeah. What, what was the client? Jiffy Condoms. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So at the time, you know, condoms were, were suddenly a new thing again because of the whole um, AIDS crisis and everything. And right. uh, this brand was trying to muscle in. And I made what was essentially what would have later on been called a viral because it was a deliberately provocative and controversial commercial for okay. condoms. And it won a, won a lion at the Cannes um, Advertising International Festival. And I was off and running. Your first ad. That's incredible, Theo. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So there must be a real art in telling a story in, you know, a 30 second or a 60 second spot versus longer form. Have you always kind of been focused on that kind of short form commercial stuff? Well, as you as you can tell, I, I stumbled into it 
but I became very, very, very interested in it very quickly, which is why I, after a, few, a couple of years as a, as a runner, and in fact, even within the first year of running, I'd, I started writing articles for the trade press because I became obsessed with the whole process. Right. And in particular with this star system of directors in London and all the different awards and, and who was hot and who was less hot and who was getting yeah. this big job and who was getting that big job. So the, I sort of, by the time I became a filmmaker, that was the medium that I was already immersed in. But you're absolutely right. It's a very, very particular uh, craft to tell a story and get an idea across and get all that communication across in that very, very short time. And the reason I know that particularly is not only because I've had to learn, I had to learn it myself and I had to become a specialist in it myself. But very often um, over the years, I was in production companies where agencies would, out of being sort of starstruck, they would often hire big feature film directors to make their commercial. I and that. I can remember loads of times where, where I used to absolutely piss myself because they'd get in some massive feature film director would come in yeah. who, would, who would find the whole thing really distasteful. Oh, advertising, how ghastly. Uh -huh. How much did you say you were going to pay me? Yeah. Uh, we, we'll pay you £150,000. Oh, I suppose I could think about it. And then come in, <laughs> do it. I remember one in particular. God, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention his name. He's not, no longer with us. I'm going to mention it. Then you, you, you decide whether you keep the name in. But his name, John Schlesinger, is one of the great uh, British directors of the second right. half of the 20th century. He made okay. Midnight Cowboy, you know, one of the great... Oh, right, OK. Dustin Hoffman and everything. He, I remember I was at this production company and Sony in the United States, we represented Schlesinger. He was on our list. It wasn't right. my company at that time. It was a company that I was also on the list of. But I was one of two focused commercial directors and I was working a lot and I was making commercials that was my craft that's what I did Sonny Sonny's agency in America phoned up and said we want we want to work with Jan Schlesinger he's so cool <laughs> right. so that we're like yeah okay so I mean there's nothing to do with me I'm just hearing it in the background and the catalog story short he shoots this commercial the budget must have been way over a million dollars he would have been paid literally what I said about 150 grand I would imagine Right. And they got to the cutting room. And I remember I was in the office the day they phoned up from the cutting room. The agency, the ad agency had phoned up and said, we're here with the editor. And he says it is impossible to make this story work within the 30 seconds with what John has shot. <laughs> so they said, so they, oh, no. So, I mean, we know John must have had a plan. We just can't figure out what it is. Could you phone him up and get him, get him to maybe come and see us or talk to us? So they what? phoned John Sessinger up and he said, I have no interest whatsoever in getting involved in that. Not I couldn't give up. I couldn't give less of a fuck about how whether it works in thirty seconds or not. Please don't bother me with advertising again. Wow. wow. And that's just one example. I had loads of examples like that. I used to love it because it, it said two things to me. It, it, it let me realise that advertising is actually, when you think about it, a very trivial thing if you're making great feature films but it yeah. also made me realize that the craft that me and loads of other scores and scores of other guys and women all over london and the world who make commercials it is a particular craft and just because you're a great film director don't mean you can make a great commercial a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So before we talk about your football shirt choices, I wanted to mention as well that you host a radio show, the Johnny Friendly Radio Show on EN5 Radio. Uh, it's also on Mixcloud. I've been spinning a few episodes myself. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. I really enjoy the music. It's really kind of eclectic stuff you put yeah. on there. All sorts yeah. of genres. You must exactly. really know your music. Well, I've always been a massive music fan. I mean, like most geeky people who come on podcasts like this and my podcast, <laughs> I'm completely in a geeky, obsessed I was almost probably as obsessed with music as I am football and have been since I was a kid. You know, both right. those things are my twin obsessions. Um, so, yeah, I've always loved music. I've always been obsessed with it. But the brilliant thing about doing that uh, radio show is that it uh, gives you a reason to become even more obsessed and knowledgeable because every week I'm thinking, what what will I play? What could I play on Saturday? So I'm, I'm suddenly, I've been doing it about four years. And in those four years, I've learned more and become more knowledgeable i always thought of myself as somebody who knew a lot about music but now i know way way more and it's a brilliant discipline for that yeah and i just love it and and the only criteria for the music that i play is whether i like it or not that's it right and that is a fantastic privilege most radio shows that you know the the person playing the music doesn't have that because there's a playlist and there's or you know you you get down to the really formulaic stuff like heart and yeah you know magic and all that is completely done by algorithms and market research so i'm the complete opposite i play literally whatever i like because i like it and i do take requests as well but of course my listeners as you might expect they basically totally get it totally more or less fully embrace my general taste yeah. so when they make requests they always they, they, they're hardly ever that are in congress you know right well, look, I've got a few quick fire questions. Find out a bit more about your taste. You've got to choose one or the other. Okay. Okay. Yep. So the Beatles or the Stones? Beatles. Beatles. Okay. But I love both. Right. The Clash or the Pistols? Clash, but I love both. Motown or Stax? Motown, but I love both. Uh, <laughs> okay. The last one, Scar or Rocksteady? Scar, but I, I love both. You love both. You love everything by the sound of it. Uh, yeah, because, do you know, one of my great, my, my motto in life is don't rule anything out by category, only rule it out by quality. 
Yeah. So to rule out an entire category of something seems mad to me. I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, I don't, I'm not keen on thrash metal. <laughs> I'm scared it might give me a headache, you know, but yeah. for the most part, there's no genre of music that I dislike. It's more about, um, yeah, it's about the quality. There's terrible everything. Remember that slogan, the six, I think it was the Sex Pistols that had it, which was, as a slogan I've always, always loved. And it basically is 99% is shit. And when you think about it, that is something, that's a principle you could apply to everything. You know, when people say, oh, the internet's a terrible thing. Oh, yeah. That's ridiculous. That's, yeah, 99% of it's terrible, of course. People say, aren't books wonderful? Yeah, the good ones, 99% yeah, yeah. of them are shit, you know. So <laughs> don't rule things out by the medium or the genre. Oh, people say, oh, reggae, oh, so boring. But there's loads of shit reggae, but there's loads of great reggae as well, you know. Very true. Well, look, here's to the 1%, mate. So Exactly. Let's talk about some football shirts. Um, the, the generic question I ask everybody at the start is, what do football shirts mean to you? Well, they mean so many things, I suppose. Football shirts, I suppose, are the graphic representation of the thing that you love. They're so graphic, aren't they? That's what's great about it, especially now. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I the first football shirt I ever owned, I was five, six years of age. Right. And in those days, I'm old enough, like probably a lot of your guests are not old enough to, to say this, but before when I first was interested in football shirts, they were completely different. There was a right. time in the late seventies where football shirts changed. And that was the time when, in fact, probably in the mid seventies, because I think Leeds were the first team that I can remember doing it, where suddenly the logo of the manufacturer was on the shirt, along, yeah. on the other side of the shirt from the badge of the team. And there were bits of graphic, what is essentially graphic design on the, on the kits. So that's when you started getting different uh, stripes, different types of stripes, different types of colored designs and stuff like that. But when I first got a football shirt, it was about 1972 and it was my birthday. And um, I wanted, they said, what do you want for your birthday? My mum and dad. And I said, I want to get a, a Tottenham shirt. So right. what that meant in those days was a long sleeve white jersey. That's all it was with a number on one side and a badge on the other. And you had to yeah. buy the number and buy the badge and buy essentially the sew them on and sew them <laughs> on. Right. So my dad went to the sports shop, bought a white, a long sleeve white jersey, a Tottenham badge and a, and a number nine because I was a uh, Martin Chivers was my favorite player. Right. OK. And every, in any case, number nine, that, you know, it was between nine and ten of the most glamorous yeah. numbers. So I woke up on my birthday morning unwrap my present there it was Tottenham shirt picked it up beautiful badge sewn on beautifully by my mum turn it round it's got number six on it um... I'm like oh and my dad's put his head in his hand <laughs> and my mum's gone do you like it she's sewn oh. it on upside down because she didn't know she didn't tell her she so I actually had Phil Beale's shirt it was a much less celebrated <laughs> much less celebrated footballer good footballer but uh so you know, football shirts, I, I said they're graphic. I, that's probably, I, I mean, I, when, when, you are, when you gave me this to do, I thought, what's the best way to approach this? I suppose it's, I want, I'm going to have to have a Tottenham shirt, obviously. I, yeah. can't, I don't want three Tottenham shirts. And then I'm going to have a, probably an England shirt because the only other team that's caused me as much emotional, you know, had as much of an emotional impact on me as Tottenham is probably England. Yeah. And then I probably want a sort of left field personal choice. So, but then with the Tottenham shirt, there's so many Tottenham shirts, you know. Anyway, what was the question? I always do this, you'll find just, out. No, 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 that's totally fine. Just to kind of ask you what they mean to you, but I think yeah, it's quite clear I mean, that they mean great deal. A lot, yeah. 
They do mean a lot, yeah. And obviously, they, they evoke certain moments and times in your football-supporting, you know, life as well. You see a particular shirt in you. I mean, I can, I can think of certain big Tottenham moments. I can picture the actual shirt, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, look, we're, we're going to kick off with a shirt from the 80-81 to 81 season. It's made by Lecoq Sportif, and it is for Tottenham Hotspur. Tell me more, mate. Yeah, yeah, well said. <laughs> well, I think, I was thinking to myself, so you, how, what are the criteria... I'm sure people, if it's anything like my podcast, people uh, use different, their own criteria to decide how to choose. And that's great. So I thought to myself, well, I've got to have, what makes a great shirt to you personally? So it's the team that wears it, the time that it's worn generally, the specific moments it was worn for, but Mm -hmm. also there's another whole different uh, criterion, which is how good is the, how pleasing is the shirt as a piece of design? Yeah. How much do you like the shirt? This shirt is for me the ultimate football shirt. I could have chosen the one I just described, the the white unadorned shirt, and I nearly did. But yeah. this is to me the greatest football shirt of all time because every single uh, criterion is satisfied. It's beautiful. So in other words, it is a it is to me the most beautiful shirt. So let's talk about that first. So it is unique. Pretty much unique. I can't think of another shirt like it. it. I don't like, in the late 70s, that time I was talking about where it all started happening, Admiral were particularly um, guilty of this. People yes. now look back and we love them. But at the time, I was appalled. I Even at that early age, I ended up being a commercial director. I already had an aesthetic kind of snobbery <laughs> about me. I was thinking, oh, my God, those shirts are ghastly. I mean, the first shirts that Ardiles and uh, Velia war when they signed after the 78 world cup that amazing coup when tottenham signed these two world cup winners yeah the admiral was the admiral shirt that we had and it was to me it was garish it had especially the away the away one was awful the yellow one with the piping now we all love it for nostalgic reasons but right they had those out uh sort of admiral piping where it was just yeah. the admiral logo from you know from an actual admiral's sort of uniform yeah repeated over and over in stripes and I didn't like it. I, I had a much more minim, minimalist taste even then. Yeah, yeah. And so by the time we then we get to to eighty, also the team wasn't that good. Ardiles will tell you himself when he he says when he turned up and he started training with that team. If he'd known in advance how shit they were, he probably <laughs> wouldn't have come. He's looking around. There's only one other good player in the place apart from those two, which is Hoddle. He totally right. saw that. He was he was brilliant. But then yeah. he's looking around the rest of them. He grew to appreciate the talents of Perryman and others, which were different talents to the ones yes. known in Latin America. You know, but anyway, that was almost for me reflected in the shirt. We went up when you know we bought our delays and Villa, and we got, we lost seven nil to to Liverpool in the first few weeks of that season. Of, oh uh, wow! And the shirt almost mirrored the shirt was a bit not that good, and nor was the team. Right, eighty eighty one, they buy. Crooks and Archibald, who are two amazing forwards. Even to yeah. this day, they're two of my favourite forwards. I mean, Archibald, world-class. Crooks, very, very, very good. And a brilliant partnership. Still mates. We had him on the Spurs show. They're brilliant together. Oh, uh, nice. Absolutely fantastic. Nice. And so suddenly everything moves up. At that point, I'm about, let me think, I'm 15. And so I've started going on my own. Even though I live miles away, the other side of London, I've gone right across London and I've started going to White Hart Lane. Not every game, but quite a lot, standing behind the goal. Right. So I'm watching this team and suddenly we're good because the the pieces in the jigsaw have arrived. You know, these two are not one, but two. Imagine signing two top, top strikers in the same, not many people, not many yeah, teams do yeah, that, yeah. you know, and they immediately hit it off together. 
or it seemed that way. I bet I don't know if it was immediately, but quickly. And it coincides with this incredible shirt. I had never heard of Lecoq Sportif. In those days, this, as I say, this fetish for sports manufacturers' shirts and logos and designs was only in its very earliest stages. Sure, yeah. We'd heard of Adidas, obviously. We'd heard of uh, Admiral and Umbro. Nike even then was a twinkle in someone's eye, you know, in yeah. terms of football kits. But Lecoq Sportif, what the hell's that? And it's this kind of very exotic French brand. But the shirt that they designed was, I mean, it's it's just mouth-watering. It's a beautiful yeah. white shirt. It's very minimalist, and it's got a V-neck. I've never seen a V-neck before. It's quite a deep V as well, isn't it? Yeah. And the V-neck has got one single, quite narrow stripe that goes parallel to the V. Yeah. And that's it in terms of, you know, adornment. It doesn't have any piping or other unnecessary, you know, stuff. It hasn't even got a collar, as I say. It hasn't even got a runner. It's got a V-neck. It couldn't yeah. be more minimalist. And then you think, but where's the badge? And that's that is the ultimate brilliant thing because the badge, every other badge before, since, and forever has been on one side of the chest. This badge sat centrally below the V. Yeah. And the Tottenham badge in those days was the perfect Tottenham badge. It's the one I love most. Just the cockerel on the ball. That's it. No words. No lettering. No unnecessary. Again, they redesigned it like 20 years later. And I don't mind the current badge, but they, they felt the need to make the top of the cockerel white and the bottom of the cockerel blue and right. to make the ball look like a kind of Victorian ball. And this one was just really simple graphic. It's the greatest Tottenham badge. And it was the badge and it sat beneath this V. It was the most beautiful kit and remains for me the most beautiful kit. Yeah. So, so already, so the team's suddenly good. The kit is as good as it's ever been and then of course to cap it all the reason why you choose this kit is that i'd been waiting it seemed like ages eight years now it seems like nothing for Spurs <laughs> to win a trophy you know when i was very little i first went when i was five in 1971 when i was very little they used to win trophies and then they stopped for eight years that seemed like so long it seemed like an, an injustice i was absolutely i couldn't believe it yeah and when we won we, we the 81 cup final is one of the most famous of all went across two games first one was a draw Spurs didn't play very well got a bit lucky got what was essentially an own goal equaliser and took it to a replay and on the Thursday of course they had the the, the replay and I went to the replay my right. uncles queued up got tickets and I went with my brother and two uncles we went to the replay and it's one of the greatest FA Cup finals ever played as everyone knows and one of the greatest moments in any FA Cup final ever, which was Ricky Villiers' incredible winning goal, where he slaloms around the Manchester City defence and slots it home right. to win the cup for Tottenham, wearing this shirt. So this shirt not only is a thing of beauty, not only was it worn by one of the great Tottenham teams, but it was worn in one of the great Tottenham moments as well. And then, yeah. you've, got, then you've got, of course, you've got it being worn as, the, as Steve Perriman lifts the cup, and as we all, as the team parades the cut round the round Wembley, and I'm there, nice. you know, overcome with emulsion, and the whole thing <laughs> is like, you know, I mean, I couldn't not choose that shirt. I mean, that is the for me, that's still the ultimate shirt. Iconic, mate, absolute beauty. Yeah. So this one is going to be slightly less known, I think. So this is yeah. a, a red shirt worn by a 12-year-old Scott Parker in a McDonald's commercial. Yeah, so I thought this would be this would be my left field more personal choice. I, I suddenly remembered it the other day. So I so this is in 1992. I'd been 
I was still, uh, what would I have been? 26 years of age. I'd been, I hadn't really got going yet. I wasn't really established. I'd won that award. In fact, I'd won another award and I was getting, starting to get work, starting to make a living. And I got this, this was the first time I got a job that was a football job. And, and this agency uh, came and said, look, we've got the McDonald's account. We've got this football script. We've heard that, uh, that you're really into football. Yeah. And it's a simple idea just to show that we do takeaway. We're going to have a kid practicing in the garden, playing keepy uppy, blah, blah, blah. And then the voiceover says, this kid knows that practice makes perfect. And he also knows that McDonald's do takeaway. So he doesn't have to go. He can carry on practicing. His mum and dad will bring in the McDonald's home. Right. So I was thrilled because, as I say, this is probably might have been my first really mainstream commercial that went on mainstream television. Wow. Um, and so I decided that all I need is such a simple script, which was good because I, but my, um, my craft was not that well developed at that point. I would have struggled okay. with a more complicated concept, but I thought, well, what do I need here? I thought to myself, I need two things to make this good. Uh, I need a, a really nice garden. So the location's quite nice because we never go anywhere. So it's got to look quite nice. Yeah. But much more important than that, I've got to get the best keepy uppy kid I can get. I've got to get, get the, and I want him to be young because that's yeah. the idea. So he's got to be about 12 and he's got to be just absolutely brilliant at keepy uppy. Right. So I spoke to a location guy. That's what you do. I briefed out the location. He said, there's loads of what you're describing. I said, I want it to be a nice garden, but I also want it to have something nice in the background. Like it could be a church or whatever. So he, found, he said, I know an area in South London that's good for that. So I said, all right, so we'll go look in South London and we'll, we'll, we'll set up for South London. And then I'll tell the casting people to find me the best young footballer in South London. Right. And that's how it came about. So I meet this kid. I've, I've cast it. I've looked at lots of kids, but he is by, by far the best one. I'm thinking he's definitely the one. So I cast him and on the day we go and he was uh, completely brilliant at keepy uppy, which is the only thing I needed him to be. Yeah. And uh, but he was also incredibly impressive. And I had lunch with him in the Winnie Bago when you're a director, especially in those days, you can uh, you have your own Winnie Bago, right? <laughs> 26 piss taking bloke. I've got this Winnie <laughs> Bago. And I said to him and his dad, you, you know, come in and have lunch, have lunch in here. And I had a chat with him and so many things struck me about him. But the two things that I remember most was one, how unbelievably cool he was. He was not intimidated by anything. 12 right. years of age. He's being filmed. He's the star. There's no, no one else in the commercial. Yeah. He's got to perform entirely, and he's 12. Nothing phased him ever. He wow. never looked nervous. He never said he was nervous. He just did it precisely as, he, as I asked of him all the way through. So that, I thought, was remarkable. The other thing I remember is I had a chat with him at, at, um, you know, in the lunch break, and he, he was very mature, precocious in a good way. And uh, I asked him about who he was signed to, and he was signed to Charlton. Right. And I said... Is that just because it's a local team? And he said, every single team in London tried to get me because I was a hot property. So every team tried to get me. Wow. Except one. I said, who's that? He said, it's the team I support. I said, who's that? He said, Tottenham Hotspur. And I went, you're uh, joking. Uh, wow. I said, that's my team. And he said, yeah, they, 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 the only ones who didn't make me an offer. And wow. um, I said, so in the end, we thought it's best to go with the local team would be the least upheaval. So we went with Charlton. Right. And I never forgot it, but I didn't didn't think for one moment because all of these kids who are really talented, um, you know, you can be a brilliant twelve year old and be 
be a, 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 a nobody at 16. That's the way it works in football. Yeah. We all know that. They don't always come through. But, Sonny uh, Pike you know, is the one I remember. Do you remember Sonny Pike was all over the TV at that kind yeah. of age as well, wasn't he? And he, he never made he it, did he? No. I mean, there's loads of them. You know, even kids at 18 who were the best at 18 and then suddenly disappear. John Bostock was another one that Tottenham got from Crystal Palace. They nicked him. He was the hottest property yeah, in football. Yeah. Never, I mean, he played one game, I think. Yeah. But uh, the, going back to the shirt, the reason why I chose the shirt because it was one of those things where that moment was a big moment for me. And people still dig out that commercial. It's on YouTube and people dig it out every now and then when something happens with Scott Park or whatever. Right. And on YouTube, it's got the 1994 World Cup at the end of it. So people think it was made in 94, but I actually made it in 92 and they rehashed it for the 94 World Cup because I think oh, they had okay. a sponsorship deal or something like that. Yeah. But, um, the shirt was the reason why I chose it is because. I was quite, as I say, still quite uh, gauche and new as a director. And I wanted it to be a red shirt, which I, I've got a problem with red shirts generally as a <laughs> fan. But I wanted this to be a red shirt because he was in, surrounded by green. And I thought that's the way to make him pop out. And that's really important. Right. OK. But I thought if I go red, I always in those days was trying to put my own little personal little Easter egg in the commercial. Nice. And what I did was, even though I'd always hated school, I thought if it's a red shirt, the only team I'm, I'm a pretty crap footballer the only team I ever played for regularly that was a proper team was my primary school team we even got right. to a cup final but we lost the cup final right. so I thought I'm going to get the badge from my primary school and I'm going to put it on the shirt that the kid nice. wears in the commercial nice and I did so he had a red shirt because I wanted him to have a red shirt but I put the strand on the green that was my school when I was a kid strand on the green uh, badge on it so I was looking at it again on YouTube and it's still really visible yeah, I mean, there might have even been a copyright issue. I don't know. We never checked it out. <laughs> it's a lovely badge, actually. It's a nice, another nice piece of graphic design. The funny thing I also remember is this creative team were very, they were completely the opposite end of their careers from me. I'm just starting up and learning, and they were like real doyens that had hired me, and they were brilliant. Like a lot of very experienced, they weren't all antsy and nervous and trying to tell me what to do. They just said everything's up to you, which was brilliant. They were such nice guys, you know. Right, right. But one of them said to me halfway through the shoot. I see the kid plays for Strand on the green. And I thought, <laughs> I, I thought, how the hell does he know that? And he said that he'd been to Strand on the green, this tiny little school in such oh, a weird wow. coincidence. And wow. he must have been there like 30, 40 years before. You know, this guy's in his late 50s, early 60s. It's yeah. a really strange thing that always stuck in my mind as well. So that commercial is still a cult item because of Scott. And um, and that badge is still, still like an advert for Strand on the green as much as it is for um, McDonald's. And we've done well. I have to link that one out in their podcast notes to the YouTube. Yeah, do yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, mate, your your third and final shirt is the England shirt from the two thousand and two World Cup. Yeah. So I thought, as I said, I thought, how sh how should I do this? I've got to choose a Tottenham shirt. I should definitely choose a shirt that's sort of a per more of a personal memory and is a bit quirky left field. So I've done those two, and then I thought I've got to choose an England shirt because obviously I've always been an England fan. I mean, I say, obviously, I'm, I'm part Irish. I've got an Irish name, but I grew up right. in England. I've always been in, I regard myself as English more than anything, or British, certainly. And when I started to do quite well making TV commercials, one of the things I did was I went to more and more football matches. Because okay. what are you going to do? You get money, you can do stuff, you know. Yeah, and I started going to follow England. So in 1994, for example, I'd started for the first time, had a bit of money. And I took my brother, Sam, who's been on here. Yeah. I took him... 
it's just the two of us went to Los Angeles for the World Cup in 1994. Obviously, England didn't make that World Cup, or I've still got a baseball cap, England World Cup 94, that I bought out there <laughs> that they'd made in preparation for England, and England failed to qualify. Yeah. But he and I went out there. That was brilliant. And then, so in 96, of course, we went to loads of games in Euro 96, which was amazing. 98, I went to France and saw them play uh, Tunisia. Load of us right. went out there and there was a massive riot in Marseille. It was like of a course. war zone, very scary. And yeah. then I went back out because it was France. I was coming home and then going back. So I then went, I went back out for the Argentina game, which is the game where Beckham gets sent off and we yep. lose on penalties, uh, which was one of the most sort of intensely emotional moments for any England fan of that generation. I mean, my generation, because it was it felt like such an injustice the way Beckham had got sent off. Although, they, do, of course, everyone turned on him when he got home because it was a bit stupid and petulant of him. But yeah. he definitely, he'd obviously been provoked and been uh, Simeone had done a number on him. Uh, but it was an exhausting and emotionally exhausting experience going to that game. I went with my friend Jason and we flew back the next day. So the reason why I mention all this is I didn't go in 2000 to to Belgium for the Euros, but I, in, in 2002, I went to Japan. Wow. What happened was um, I, had a, I had my first daughter in uh, 2000, and then I had my second daughter in 2002. My, my mate, Kevin, who I sit with at Tottenham Hotspur, I've sat with him for like 30 years at Tottenham. <laughs> and he's also a commercial director. And the two of us at that time were doing like incredibly well and really just basically having it large. Right. And, um, and he... He said, to, we went to the Arsenal away game in the spring and he said, mate, I've just got back from Japan. I've made a commercial out there and I'm telling you, it is the best place I've ever been. And I've got it all set up out there now because I've got all production contacts and everything. And I'm, I've, we've got to go to the World Cup. Yeah. And I said, oh, I'd love to go, Kev, but my second child is due date is the first day of the World Cup. So there's no ah. way I can justify going to the World Cup. Yeah. And he said... Oh, come on. No, it'd be all right. Come on. You've got to go. I'm telling you, it's a once in a lifetime. I said, I've always wanted to go to Japan. I really have, but there's no way I could justify it. I can't, I can't be just leaving on them. So he said, oh, come on. He kept going on at me about it. And I thought, I mean, it's a non-starter, you know? Yeah. And then my second child, Agnes was born two weeks early. She was born uh, two weeks early. Okay. So when she's born, I'm sending all the texts out, you know, everything's great. She's fine. And to all the friends and family and he gets the text. And everyone else, you know, texts back, oh, so pleased, congratulations, <laughs> she, she's lovely. And all, this. and all he said was, I got a text back from him, and it just said, we're going. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he said. Get it booked. <laughs> <laughs> we're going. And I thought, oh, my God. Oh, shit. So as the so days, and uh, you know, the days go by, and I'm thinking, um, can I really do this? Can I really do this? He's phoning, have you told her yet? Have you told her yet? Meaning my wife. <laughs> anyway i went i went she wow. was brilliant my wife was brilliant because it was a second child it's much less stressful when you have a second child and, right, and, right, right. and her parents came up to stay and everyone was fine about it and i flew out there and i met him in tokyo and we basically stayed in japan uh, we we weren't there for the first game right the first game which was switzerland i think and sweden drew. i think sweden that's right we drew yeah. a very disappointing game and then the second game which because we'd only drawn the first it was became really important was to we played Argentina, Argentina. and Sapporo. So we're in to, we based ourselves in Tokyo and sort of commuted to the games. And we uh, we flew to Sapporo from Tokyo and went to this game. I've chosen the white shirt, by the way, because I couldn't right. bring myself to choose another red one. But they wore the red shirt in the in the Sapporo game. And of course, we won. And yeah. 
Beckham scored the penalty, which was seemed like poetry. And the fact that I'd been to that game four years before and then was at the sort of revenge game, it just felt so brilliant. And that yeah. night was one of the great nights in Sapporo. And we met up with my friend Nick Hancock, you know, who at yes. the time was a, was doing, um, they think it's all over and everything. Cool. And, and we went, I and mean, it was like such a great party in Sapporo we had that night. And then flew back. Then we went to the Nigeria game, which we just needed a point. It got a point. It's boring, nil nil, didn't matter. That was yeah. out in, uh, that was down in Osaka. So we got the bullet train to Osaka and back from Tokyo. Wow. It sounds like and a trip. It was incredible. It's the trip of a lifetime. It really yeah. was amazing. And then we went, and then we drew Denmark in the first knockout round and we went out to, Nigata, which is on the opposite coast to Tokyo. So again, we got the bullet train. We had to stay in a ski a ski resort, out of season ski resort, because you know couldn't get hotels. Because about and there's all sorts of shenanigans going on, trying to get tickets, trying yeah, to get hotel yeah. rooms, and the whole thing was really exciting. And, and then uh, we were with Hancock and David Badil and all of that lot. And right, and that was we won three nil in torrential rain, and we wore the white shirt that night uh, as we had against Nigeria. And it's a lovely white shirt. It was pure white it was umbro but it had a thin red stripe down one side they'd never yeah. done that before or since and it worked really well the red shirt was good as well but as i said i couldn't actually choose a red shirt again but but it was one of the nicest england shirts and it was actually a very good england team that uh 2002 team it was the golden generation the golden generation yeah good team in 98 hoddle's team was very very good and 2002 was very good as well yeah had some great players and beckham was at the peak of his powers mm. you know michael owen um there was a certain centre half whose name I can't bring myself to say, but he was good. <laughs> at that point he was also Rio, Rio Ferdinand. No, Rio was fantastic. <laughs> Rio was literally one of the best, you know, defenders I've ever seen. It was a really good team. It was a really good team plus Danny Mills. Right. Right. Heskey, Gary, Gary, Gary Neville got injured. Yeah, but Heskey by that time was doing really well. If you remember when they went and in the lead up to that tournament, they went to Germany and won five one. Oh uh, yeah, Heskey was great. Heskey had found a role for him. He was no longer a laughing stock. He was like, you know, a really effective big centre forward. I felt anyway. No, I think yeah. it was a great team, and that trip was unbelievable. And that shirt was a great, was a nice England shirt. I mean, there've been some good England shirts, just like they've been good. I mean, the shirts I think generally get better. Generally, that that's not uniformly, but if you look at shirts, like I say, there used to be football shirts went through the most awful garish time, and now. On the whole, they're pretty good football shirts, I think. Yeah, simple as best, I always think. I think you, so. Were you there for the Brazil game as well? No. So I had a ticket. So David Batil said, I've got a spare for the Brazil game. Do you want it? So I said, oh, brilliant. Yeah, I'll take it. And right. then I went back to that. That was in Nagata. So we went back that night. Me and Hancock were staying in the same hotel with Chris England, who was the guy who wrote An Evening with Gary, uh, Gary Lineker, the play. And right. he was writing a book, which I subsequently was in, about this whole, you know, odyssey around japan yeah and um i'm in this japanese hotel it was a traditional one with a with a you know a futon and all this and hancock's sharing a room next door with chris english and he knocks on the door and says jesus christ can i just keep in your room chris chris england is he's just snoring he just can't stop i said yeah no problem so he's so hancock crashes out i'm just about to go to sleep and the phone goes and it's my daughter who's two years of age right phoning me from london and she just phones up and starts singing me a song and i I started tears start rolling down. <laughs> I said to Hancock, I put when when the when the phone call had finished, I said, Nick, I think I'm gonna have to go home. And he said, Oh, he's just he's finally got to sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come here, come in this room to get some sleep. Said, <laughs> All right, okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, right, okay. So the next day I um booked my flight home. So I didn't go to the Brazil game, but um and uh, David Patil was really cross because I said I'd take the ticket and then I didn't. Uh. But um 
but so I didn't go. I got home for that and watched it with me uh, father-in-law. He'd been holding the fort for me at, at the crack of dawn at home. Of course, um, yeah, the timings were weird, weren't they? Being across I suppose, the yeah. I suppose if we'd won that game, I would have probably regretted not hanging yeah. around. But since we lost, it was, um, I mean, I just, you can only be away from your little kids so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything worked out, mate. Yeah. So that's three great choices. Thank you so much for uh, taking part and making the time to do it. Oh, it's an, an enormous pleasure. I can talk, I can talk football for uh, ages, as you, as you can probably tell. So there you have it. Massive thanks to Theo for sharing his football kit memories with me. You can follow me and my own collection on Instagram or get in touch via Twitter or email. Make sure you follow Theo's podcast, Life Goals, as well as his other projects, including that McDonald's ad with Scott Parker, which I've linked out in the notes section. Finally, the music was produced by Eva Led. Links to buy his music in the notes section too. Other than that, I guess that's it. Until next time, I'll see you later.